0: 4 Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Today's guest has had a glittering career so far as one of the UK's best car journalists. I asked how he would like to be introduced on the podcast and he suggested a pound shop Jeremy Clarkson. Of course, one could argue that Jeremy Clarkson is a pound shop Jeremy Clarkson. And I would like to think that the lovely Ben Oliver is far more than that. He's a motoring journalist who specialises in taking cars to very distant places where he says they probably shouldn't really go. He writes stunning articles about such journeys for newspapers and magazines around the world, and amongst other things, is contributing editor of Car Magazine. Let's give him a proper introduction. (laughs) Motoring journalist Ben Oliver was born amidst the Troubles in Belfast, with the family moving to slightly dull Reading when he was six. We talk about his life-changing teen travels to Israel, Tunisia, Gaza and Kurdistan, the glory 90s and noughties days of magazine journalism, how LA porn sets are like clinical operating rooms, driving an open-top Bentley up the blood highway to the Arctic Circle in winter, the road sliding away in the monsoon on an insane Himalayas trip in a mini, North Korea being one of the most bizarre travel experiences, the joys of EVs and much more. So talk to me.
1: Uh, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow.
0: <laughs> Is that your go-to?
1: My mom was a radio journalist. And that's, oh, was what, she? That, that's what she always—that was her kind of go-to. Uh, yeah, she, she um, whenever she was testing levels, that's what she went to. She probably picked it up from some other, you know, radio journalist from years ago. So what? she was a, a film critic, um, and that's how we ended up with that business in the in the film industry, basically. So I kind of took it over from, her, expanded it slightly, largely.
0: Is that why you went into journalism?
1: Um. No, I, I don't know. It. My dad was a, a reporter um, as well, uh, but a like a hard news reporter and was a, 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 a war correspondent, um, a foreign correspondent, and the chief reporter on the, the Daily Mirror. And it was a bit like, I don't know you sort of liken it to be in the village blacksmiths some like if you grow up around that then i think that's kind of what you end up sort of doing almost by by default so um and also it kind of influenced my attitude to travel i suppose i just saw him traveling the world for for work and um i don't know subconsciously just sort of you know absorbed the fact that you could do that you know you could make a you could make a living out of out of traveling and, and going overseas and seeing all these different places we ended up in different very different forms of journalism obviously he was a hard news reporter um, and i've always been a a feature writer but yeah, I suppose fundamentally that was a, you know, like a, a guiding influence, I suppose, in the in the, the very early years. I'd literally find out where he was based on what was on the front page of the the Daily Mirror that day, you know, he'd mm-hmm. sort of come back from school, you know, the paper would have been delivered and, and he'd be, you know, there for the end of communism in Russia, you know, the, the disintegration of the Warsaw Pact, the first Gulf War, um, much earlier in the, the Falklands War. And so, yeah, that was that was ingrained, I suppose, from, from quite an early age.
0: Did you see him a lot or was he always
1: travelling? Not a huge amount, actually. Like, he was um, quite distant, I suppose, as a, as a dad. He wasn't there physically, obviously, a, a lot of the time. Um, so, like, a very admirable character, you know, like, compared to the other Dads at school who were, you know, accountants or IT guys. No disrespect to, you know, <laughs> accountants or, or IT guys. He was on the front page of the papers, you know, yeah. and he was there, whatever the, the biggest stories were, you know, from kind of the, I suppose, from kind of the Falklands War onwards. That would have been my kind of my earliest memories of him. Him going away, there was an excitement. To that, you know, he—he, he, you know, I remember him coming in to, to do a talk in uh, my school, where he sort of came in in his body armor that he was had been wearing in whatever the current war was—basically, you know, the Gulf War and Kosovo or, or whatever—and that and that was that was hugely exciting, and that was something to, to kind of look up to. But he was kind of a dad that you sort of admired and were excited by rather than kind of a touchy feely dad who was sort of there for you know every you know cycle race i was in or, or, or whatever so proper um,
0: old school journalism that isn't
1: it yeah it really was and it, it's kind of sad the extent to which i think that's declined you know the newspapers just don't have the budgets now to, to send reporters off to the wars you know in the in the or, or do any kind of sort of serious reporting um the way we did back then i think we've really lost something with that. You know, I think the, the whole, you know, Leveson inquiry and all the rest of it had to happen, um, you know, but I think we, we might sort of regret sort of neutering the press to, to quite the same extent that, that, that we have done. And also newspapers just don't have the budget. You know, they're, they're not getting the advertising revenue. Clearly our attention has gone, you know, sort of totally um, online. Uh, and so having big, well-staffed newsrooms is is really a thing of the past, you know. Um, And so as a result, I think a lot of stuff goes unreported. You know, there, there are all sorts of stories that previously would have been picked up on by... Um, newspapers, national and local and regional newspapers as well, that we just don't see. You know, investigations just don't happen anymore. When you actually read stories, even in you know great newspapers, not so much the Financial Times, but certainly. You know the Times and the Guardian and the the Telegraph. A lot of the time, the reporters are just re-reporting mm. what's already happened on on social media. Nobody actually speaks to anybody anymore. You know, whereas in the past, the reporters had absolutely direct off-the-record connections with politicians and policemen and criminals and, and businessmen and, and all the rest of it, and that's where stories came from. Um, and and that era of journalism, yeah, my, my father was was very much a part of. And I, I'm, it, it, sadly, it's gone. And I think initially, I, I sort of felt like I wanted to. Go down a similar route, I suppose, um, and be a, a hard news um, reporter. And I did in the early years at, at university do some work, not so much with my father, but with other kind of tabloid reporters. Did some work with the um, fake shake, Maz mood, and, uh, and did a few sort of I'm slight s- yeah, did a few sort of slightly uh, sleazy sex scandals, which I immediately regretted and thought you were
0: involved I I, in slides i to, when, I, yeah. I
1: brought the stories in right, I and, and, and reported them and, and sort of got those scoops of pretty quickly realized that that wasn't the kind of writing that i i wanted to do and that you know sort of feature writing um, was was definitely where it was at and that still gave you that that same flexibility and that freedom to travel the difference was you could just choose where you wanted to go you know um and so you know uh, yeah if i if there was a part of the world that i wanted to go to or an event that i wanted to see or whatever i could generally as a magazine writer invent an excuse to go there mm-hmm. you know you go and you sell that as a story to, to, a, to an editor. Um, and so, and so, yeah, that's the, been the. Basis of what passes for a career ever since. I so suppose.
0: where were you? Where were you growing up? Because you've got an accent, haven't you? What
1: is that accent? Um, it's 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 a residual Northern Irish accent. Is a, it? a lot of people guess antipodean Entipide, you know, like Australian or, or Kiwi, um, but for yeah, whatever reason, yeah, whatever slight twinge of Belfast remains <laughs> in my
0: voice comes yeah. across I don't, as I don't, uh, I don't as often. So. So that's yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no. The family are from my family are all from from Belfast. A few from Dublin, um, and but then when my father was uh, made. Uh, a good given a job on the, the Daily Mail first uh, and then the Murrow we, we left Belfast and, and moved to uh, uh, the lovely Reading uh, in Berkshire but you were um, growing up in Belfast was,
0: during the troubles
1: uh, well I lived there until I was six uh, and then from six until I was 18 when I, when I went off travelling um, then I was in in the the spectacularly dull, frankly, uh, <laughs> Reading, well, dull which is quite probably, the contrast, obviously, yeah, exactly. to you know, sort of Belfast in the in the seventies or early eighties by comparison with Reading. I mean, honestly, you couldn't get two towns within the UK that were more different. Um, Boring but, is probably
0: better than a war zone. I mean, yeah, what what yeah, was it like um, we were, in Belfast? Do you remember anything? You'd be pre-sit.
1: I don't remember a huge amount about the Troubles before I left, but I certainly remember going back, which obviously we did pretty frequently from from the age of you know sort of six um, onwards. Um, I remember, yeah, you know armed personnel carriers on the on the on the street, you know, sort of the armoured IEC vehicles, you know, the, the security checkpoints that, that were all the way down, you know, sort of Donegal Avenue, the, the main sort of shopping street in Belfast. And I also remember those things getting better as well, you know, and the place feeling like less militarised and less like a police state. Um, you know, when we were going back every, you know, sort of six months or so, you would, you would see the changes. So, um, and now the place has transformed. I mean, it's it's just extraordinary. Yeah. You've got the whole Game of Thrones coast on, like the North Antrim coast, um, Belfast city centre in terms of bars and restaurants is just amazing amazing there's such a great kind of foodie uh, culture there now you know and of course those tensions haven't entirely gone away and they and they do sort of rear their, their heads again um but honestly one of the great joys of my life for seeing the, the transformation in that place and you know i go back there a lot now obviously because i've got family there and i, I do a big road trip back there and um, with my uh two kids every year and clearly it's a place that you can travel to without without a, a qualm and you can do the whole sort of troubles tourism thing yes, if you want yeah, to you yeah. can jump in a black cab you know with a former paramilitary who will drive you around and you know show you the, the the murals and show you where you know some of the, the worst atrocities took place but like a lot of people just don't bother with that they just want to enjoy it as a city the same way you'd have a you know a Weekend break in Edinburgh, or Glasgow, or, or wherever. So, so yeah, yeah, things are massively better.
0: So you went travelling at eighteen.
1: Yeah, and I. You're the travel expert. Do people? <laughs> do kids still do this? And I had, you know, it was honestly one of the most formative experiences. Of my life, you know, I, I had, um, yeah, from between the age of six and eighteen, I've been a bit rude about Reading. Okay, let me take that back. You know, it was a fine place to grow oh, up. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I, I go I've got a, kind of I want to go there on holidays all the time.
0: it's <laughs> Great yeah. so. high street.
1: Yeah, but I think I was aware, particularly with Dad's job as well, that Reading was not the most exciting place in the world, and, and it would be nice to to go and see a bit of the world before I travel. So I had that. I know it's a massive cliche, but I had that gap year. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I was at a comprehensive school. I, I saved up the money, kind of working for the six, for six months of that year to then travel for nine months. Um, before I went to university, and it was genuinely the most transformative experience of my Mm. my life. I went to... I was um, living in Israel, but I was working with Palestinian uh, students, teaching English. Um, uh, I sort of travelled around, went down through Egypt, down to the Sudanese border... um, Came back up sort of through the Gaza Strip, ended up in Syria, in Kurdistan, spent uh, six weeks, a couple of months actually in Istanbul, set up another little school there for, for refugees, and genuinely came back feeling like a, a different person. But I watched The Serpent recently, oh, yes, where, where clearly, without giving too much away, backpackers are at risk yeah. from, from this guy. And I sort of looked back and I thought, oh my god, how did my parents let me go, this sort of callow youth at the age of 18 with no life experience, to Div- Syria of all places, yeah. you know, or, or Israel in In the middle of the intifada you know but you've just
0: rattled off a whole load of countries that people also didn't go to you know people did the thailand you know australia a bit of fruit picking you've you've gone to to slightly unusual
1: yeah i think i was pretty clear that i just didn't want to do the standard you know go and do a ski season or you know sort of travel around australia whatever and those are fine of course and those those are great experiences but i had a real sort of fascination with the, the middle east in particular and also those places at the time you know westerners weren't going to Syria. You know, Syria, I think, had only recently come off the, the U.S. State Department's um, list of states sponsoring terrorism, and, and so there, there really was no tourism at all, and and you know, we, at the age of 18, I was travelling with a mate, same age, um, we got to the central bus station in Damascus, and we had a little bit of Arabic at that stage, and we, we were told that the place to stay was the Hotel Pakistan, right, because apparently that was the cheapest place in town. Um, and we uh, got chatting with a guy who had, I think, worked in the U.S. and had a bit of English, and we explained who we were and what we were doing in in damascus and and he just said if you've bothered to come and visit my city there is no way you're staying in a hotel and so he invited us back to stay in a flat with with him and his family you know and it was it was extraordinary and these people didn't have much but whatever they had they they shared and those kind of experiences were were invaluable but i kind of wondered do kids still do that you know know. in this age of like constant communications are parents prepared to let the kids go and do that sort of stuff i don't think you No,
0: that's a really good question as the travel expert but also a mum, but my kids are younger as yours are Hmm. um i don't hear of any of my friend's children going traveling at 18 like they used to yeah um no. I don't,
1: hmm. do you? I again, my kids are younger and I don't sort of have currently have friends with kids of, of around that age. But well, actually no, think about it, I do have a few and I think in those cases probably the parents wouldn't
0: yeah, let, they have let, a let, let them go. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean not even I mean you think the communication would make stuff better, yeah, wouldn't easier. it? Because yeah, yeah, like exactly. there were times when you'd go without speaking to parents for days with some oh, people yeah. yeah
1: exactly I, I had I was gone for nine months in total and I would have maybe like a monthly phone call or something like that and I would write to them occasionally and my mum would write back to me and you know if you're in one place long enough to actually get an email mm. but otherwise yeah there was there was no communication they just sort of turned you loose and, and so looking back on that now as a parent you know I think that was great that my obviously at the age of 18 you can do what you want right but you know your, your parents are going to have some kind of influence over you but I'm just I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they they let me go but again I totally transformative experience and i then went on to university feeling like i'd actually seen something. some of the world yeah. and feeling a, a lot more grown up than I, I felt when i when i left you know having as i said lived in reading you know up yeah until, <laughs> up until that point reading to damascus you know quite the contrast that's, so, yeah, that's yeah. the name of your book no, Reading to, to, to Damascus. Yeah. And honestly i just you weep for what happened to syria that country was so oh, beautiful And the really people say. so hospitable and so and so welcoming and to see it rent apart like that is utterly heartbreaking and so many of the cities that suffered the worst of the, the places where we had the best time yeah. Remember, were given the, the, the you know the, the warmest welcome Aleppo, and yeah it was it's awful just and
0: awful. in terms of the warmest welcome you know you go back and stay at someone's flat I mean don't yeah. think you just Honestly, do that they, days, they had do, literally you? nothing
1: the, the Syrian state at the time because it was so bankrupt it used to sell off um its electricity to i think to iraq um and so and so there would be periods when there was just blackouts you know across the across the city so we'd be sitting there like in the dark <laughs> with this family trying to think of like you know what to sort of do or say so um but but yeah but it's not like you've got a mobile phone no exactly yeah, yeah yeah you know no pain, tetris or whatever so um so were there yeah. any
0: times that you were in you know any sort of danger do you think
1: i honestly it it thinking back over those nine months, I, I can't think of a single occasion when I, when I felt like we were. There were certainly moments of slight tension possibly, um, probably more in, when I was sort of travelling through Israel and what was then kind of the occupied territories you would just sort of feel there was a bit of an edge in the atmosphere um, And but, but generally certainly nothing kind of directed specifically towards towards me or my how George that I, I went travelling with, so um, no, you know, extraordinary. Given the reputation that that area has now, you know, for for you know, danger and, and conflict, just just didn't feel it. Just didn't feel it at all.
0: So you went back to university, transformed. Had you already decided at that point to follow in your father's footsteps? I realise you didn't become John Simpson or Casey, uh, <laughs> uh, or indeed, what's your dad's name? Uh, Ted. Ted. Ted Oliver was called. Cool, so. um,
1: uh, well, no, I, I started writing when I was fifteen. I was obsessed with cycling, um, and so I started writing for the for the for the bike magazine. Um, back then and so but this was in an era when everything was done by by phone and fax so they had no idea that i was 15 years old they they thought basically i, I bunked off school one day to my mom's going to be listening to this um uh, but to go up to, to Ali pally where there was a big kind of cycling exhibition on and the magazine that i was writing for i had a stand there so i thought well i'll go up and i'll introduce myself to them and i'd written I don't know, like three or four pieces for them but yeah like i said everything had been done i'd spoken to them on the phone you know fax them or posted them across the copy and i turned up at the age of 15 in my school uniform, in my blazer, onto the, the, the stand that this cycling magazine had. And then the editor sort of looked at me, and I introduced myself and said, hey, I'm Ben Oliver, I've been writing these stories for you. And she said, but we we thought you were an adult. She said... <laughs> and I'm like, well, like, you know, is there any problem with the stories? So, oh, will be one day. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, started with the cycling magazines. Um, uh, then when I went traveling obviously didn't do much i actually wrote for wanderlust the, oh, the yeah. travel magazine mm-hmm. i think in one of their very first issues they took a piece on that trip to syria um or my time in syria and um, so i kind of sold out when i got back to university did a little bit of work with the tabloids in my my first year at university which which paid very well but was was just morally bankrupt of me i think um but then that's when the men's mags were really taking off so fhm and loaded maxim yeah uh, and so i ended up writing um for them which was amazing i mean it was god what a time that was those magazines were regardless of whatever you think about their, their politics yeah, really and their attitudes time. yeah i mean in terms of magazine publishing there hasn't really been anything like it FHM was mm. selling three quarters of a million print copies a month it was huge you know and they had these great budgets again to travel yeah. and, and go overseas and do all these sort of mad stories and
0: they were sponsoring loads of stuff i you know there was the q awards which was from q magazine they were yeah. uh, that i was working on those at the time they were they were just, they were just had so much money. No, exactly. Budgets were massive, yeah. and they really they captured the media. zeitgeist.
1: And even if that zeitgeist is not how we oh, would, yeah, how we yeah. would choose to be now, yeah. When but... you look
0: back, like nuts loaded, yeah. Abby Titmuss, yeah. you know what yeah. happened to that poor girl? Yeah. You know <laughs> that was just exploited. She must have had yeah. something to do with it herself. But, but yeah. it was a, it was a crazy time. It
1: was bonkers, yeah. And they 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 had they had big budgets. Um, and and sometimes you know decent writers and, and editors as well. And uh, so you yeah, started.
0: Did you start travelling with that? Then?
1: Yeah. Again, there was lots of travel with that. So so pretty much all the stories that I did for um, I didn't work for for Loaded. I had lots of friends who did. I worked for FHM and for Maxim. Mm. Um, and and so I did that all the way through through university and i would say my my university degree suffered as a result right. uh, Lisa, so. but it didn't really matter at that <laughs> well point, no I, yeah because you're kind of you're, set you're on that, writing on for a, um, yeah.
0: one of the top national no, magazines at exactly, exactly. the time that's a pretty yeah. good little university job
1: yeah, yeah. definitely I, yeah i mean the uh, yeah. so go I mean, what,
0: on did, what, you, what did you write rather? about sex scandals and things give us the sleaziest <laughs> story what was the sleaziest story you've been involved in ben?
1: i pr- i probably wouldn't go into the like the proper kind of news Sex scandals that I did for the for the tabloids. That, no, doesn't, you did, that doesn't. Do uh, them. Where I did yeah. I mean, you did yeah do them. we did do um, But it's only right for the for the men's mags. I mean, oh Christ! Yeah, I drove in a in a race, a car race in Nevada where the prize was an hour. It was sponsored by a brothel, basically. and oh the, my pri- God. the prize was an hour in a hot tub with the hooker of your choice. Oh my God! And seriously. so I came second. I made very very sure that I came second on the day that I was supposed to to kind of sign up for all my courses. For the final year of my my university degree. And it was kind of a big deal. Like you had to physically be there in person and sign on the line like the university regulations. And the day that I was supposed to be doing that, I was on the set of a porn movie um, in Los Angeles doing a piece for for FHM and um, which they took as this big sort of 14, 16 page feature. Because back then porn was kind of exotic. Like, you know, it wasn't that easy just, to get hold it's of. Everywhere so, now. And so I'd managed to make contact with some porn producers and, and me and the photographer went over there and and yeah, spent a couple of days on these on these these porn sets so um, oh my god and, what was that uh, like this, I don't want to was... give the
0: wrong impression of you because you're, <laughs> you're a very nice man oh and thanks you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh,
0: but it was an interesting time so what was it like being on porn sets where was it, in LA
1: it was it was in LA it was out in the San Fernando Valley uh it was just oddly kind of clinical like it was what it's like watching a gallstone operation you know there was no kind of passion or enthusiasm there at all and oh god there's so many weird stories from that one was having a chat with the husband of one of the porn stars while his wife was in flagrante delicto with with some other star. And I said, well, why do you come along to these, these shoots? And he said, well, to make sure that, pardon my French, that no one fucks around with her. And I'm like, well... <laughs> What's that? I can. You're talking literally or metaphorically? Because it's all yeah, literally exactly, happening right exactly. now. Exactly. I think it was just the metaphorical. Thing right, yeah, yeah. The so, literal
0: is yeah. fine. It's yeah. metaphorical fucking rhythm. I mean, it's a problem.
1: But it was a fascinating industry. I did that with a, a photographer called Larry Sultan, who was, was Wait, quite no. well known as, as, a, as a photographer. I mean, an artist, really, as well, actually, in LA. But he then ended up after that. That was kind of his first foray into porn it was my only foray into porn um but he he then ended up doing a whole uh possibly like a series of books on la's porn industry and exhibitions and all the rest and larry sadly died a few years ago um but the exhibitions were amazing like his 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 work was you know kind of documentary photography on that industry was 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 just terrific and really well received and, and this big sort of touring exhibition that came to london actually so um but, uh, so where did yeah. the
0: cars you're going from porn to cars uh, there is a connection you and i were chatting earlier about how you used to go to car shows and there'd be like um because I, I should explain actually that ben and i are recording this in a car what's the name of the car uh
1: it's called a byd
0: it's called a byd it's an electric car and we've come for this little sort of uh lunch that they're giving because they're about to drive from london to paris and do this sort of whole sort of launching a new car am i right
1: uh yeah yeah so byd is it's a, a chinese car maker and um, it stands for build your dreams which is nice. you know definitely one of the worst names of <laughs> Everybody put in the back of a car. But they are amazing cars. It's a it's a it's a completely Chinese car maker. They they're now, I think, like the third most valuable car maker in, in the world. They're, they're building as many or more cars than, than Tesla, but they're coming to the UK now for the first time, which is why we should point out neither of us is sponsored by we're me, not, we've yeah, got no sadly, deal. With yeah, no. Right, maybe I'll go back so, and ask um, them
0: for some money, but they are gonna give us some lunch and they've already uh, given me a coffee. Yeah. But we're in the beautiful countryside out in Sussex in Salma in a a, um, a thatched barn. But anyway, what I was uh, it's probably irrelevant. Well, it's it, maybe it's it may have been a picture of words I guess we're in this beautiful area and we've had a little drive down to Rotting Dean in a little chat oh yeah so we were talking about car shows and how there used to be like naked women uh, dressed all over them but I think what I wanted to go through next is from Falmer you know we are traveling we've traveled all the way from Brighton that's a good five miles maybe um yeah so you're in you're in you're in porn briefly one <laughs> <laughs>
1: you you know, make it sound like I was a performer. I was okay. surely there as an observer. So.
0: Well, you know, journalism isn't the best paid thing. There's only yeah. fans' accounts, yeah. you know, yeah. that my friend suggested <laughs> I do one for my feet recently. So, I don't know. Um, and so, you're just looking, I've got my <laughs> you seeing whether I have particularly yeah. sexual feet. Hey, feet? Um, I don't think you have to have sexual feet. They're, like, foot fetish people will uh, will pay for anything.
1: Yeah, foot fetish, it's really one that I don't get at all. But I don't know, no. maybe like the older and gnarlier and more Hobbit-like the feet, are, the more they like it. I, I think don't, so, they don't, have yeah, to have anyway. Yeah.
0: anyway i digress so you're in you're in a one pawn thing working for fhm this is in the 90s early 2000s yeah, late, late 90s, yeah. yeah and um how did you fall into cars
1: cars there was always like a big crossover between the men's mags and cars because there'd yeah, be like course, a lot of yeah. sort of motor men and content, cars um, i'd always loved cars and not being completely obsessed by them but it was like you know an enthusiasm uh, and i started doing a bit of work for top gear um, magazine and then writing some kind of car content for the for the motoring magazines and then i was offered um a couple of jobs actually one by by car magazine um, which is really lovely uh, sort of a you know, very long established you know, founded in 62 or 63 I think car mag um, and then autocar which is a weekly car magazine and I just thought it would be really nice having been freelance since I was 15 basically to actually go and work with some people um, and have a have a proper job uh, so I joined autocar uh, and I was a, a test driver there a road tester alongside people like Chris Harris who's now a, a presenter on Top Gear um, and, and so did sort of like that kind of hardcore road testing for a while um, but really wanted to get back to to, to writing features, and, and so just ended up as kind of a, a car specialist. I left Autocar, and I've, I've been a contributing editor on Car Magazine, the other one that offered me a job since, God, like 2005 mm-hmm. or something like that, um, and and it's lovely. You know, Car Magazine is it's famed for it might sound a bit immodest, but like the quality of its writing, the quality of its photography, um, for kind of seeing cars in the round, you know, and, and, and you know, sort of doing travel pieces and, and talking about car culture and, and not just kind of focusing on the on the, the metlin. It's been a real joy to be involved with that magazine. And I write for a, a bunch of other titles now, um, you know, sort of in the in the UK and around the world, newspapers and, and magazines and online obviously as well. Yeah, that's kind of where the, the car thing came from. There, there was no plan, you know, like this isn't a career that has been <laughs> planned in any way. I've kind of, I've lucked into it. But um, but the amazing thing is that the car is, like it's one of the defining influences the, on the on the, certainly on the 20, 20th century and to an extent the 21st as well, you know, mm. along with, you know, industrialised warfare and the computer, you know, like the car, you know, defines the, the, the century. And so it impacts on absolutely everything. So as a, a writer about cars you can cover pretty much every topic obviously the cars themselves and how they drive mm. but also travel clearly the environment is, is a, a massive issue you know sort of finance economics you know manufacturing mm. how we structure our cities all of these things you can write about when you specialize in cars mm. it doesn't feel like a narrow kind of specialism uh at all and, and you know for me travel has been you know the the, the thing that I've, I've you know kind of wanted to focus on the, the most but i'm able to write about all of those where those has issues. it
0: taken you where have cars taken you
1: like that? Oh, God. Literally, Literally. Yeah, where have they
0: literally (laughs) taken you? And where have they metaphorically
1: taken you? Well, like I said before, you know, I've just, I've been really fortunate in the sense that if there's been a part of the world that I've wanted to go to, I've generally been able to invent an excuse to go there in a car Mm. and sell that idea to a a magazine. And so um, I've been down to Patagonia, I've taken a a Bentley up 400 miles north of the Arctic Circle in the middle (laughs) of winter, uh, took a Land Rover into Lake Eyre right in the middle of, of Australia, right in the Red Sand. So, um, uh, probably the single most bonkers thing was taking a completely standard Mini up to the highest place in the world where you can take a car—a place called the Kardang La Pass up in the Indian Himalayas, right on the border, basically between India and China, Tibet and Pakistan—and um, it was completely insane. <laughs> it was—it was honestly one of the only times when I've sort of kind of pitched one of these ideas and put it together and genuinely thought I'm not going to be able to pull this off. Like, this is too much. You know, we were driving through in monsoon. Uh, At times, it was the right time of year to go um, but but we knew that there was going to be a a risk from from the floods, there were colossal floods in in Hinchal Pradesh as we were kind of going through it, I think 36 people were killed the roads were literally being eaten out by the rivers underneath us as we were driving past, there was a moment when I was driving the Mini down down one particular stretch of road and it was an open top Mini, Right, I had the roof down and I had the door open because if the car started to tip into the water I had to be able to to bail out, Um, we got stuck in a mountainside for for two days because this kind of mud track uh, uh, that went around the mountain was the only way to get to the Cardang la pass which was the what we were aiming for this you know highest motorable road as they as they bill it um and and yeah there was a huge kind of rock slide that, that just completely destroyed the road and so we were just stuck on this muddy mountain, mountainside for for two days um behind a truck that had been hit by some rocks and the indian army were baited they managed to get a jcb up there and they were debating whether to try and pull the truck out or just knock it down the mountain so <laughs> did in order to kind of clear this quite important supply route up to the, the part of india that we were trying to get into uh what so- did they go for they did pull it out in the end. Actually, the driver, obviously, was his livelihood. He was begging them to kind of, you know, sort of not, not you know, destroy his truck. Uh, so, yeah, that was bonkers. That took us 10 days and was, and was properly hard. But spectacular, you know. I mean, and you're up at 18,000 feet. The oxygen level is really low. And and uh, and it's a pretty dodgy part of the world as well. Bill yeah. Clinton said that if the Third World War starts, that'll be where it starts. And you, you kind of feel that tension when you're up there. But the landscapes were extraordinary. Um, and, and, yeah, we just decided to do it in a completely inappropriate car and so minis had just gone on sale in india so that was kind of the Oh, I see. Yeah, i was just wondering so where the hook was like, for the yeah, story as yeah, a
0: journalist i'm yeah. thinking like how did you pitch that
1: <laughs> i did have a four-wheel drive toyota with us as well but we only needed it twice to to, to pull the mini out so um so yeah that was probably the the single maddest one but, but
0: where, where's the been what's been the longest one
1: longest in terms of time probably i don't know maybe Actually, going to possibly going to Lake Air in in Australia. So that was then. The mini were kind of similar. They were about sort of ten days to actually get to get to the location. So, um, so yeah, I've not done any of the really long, you know, kind of transcontinental trips because I mean, as a reporter, they don't necessarily make make sense. You know, they're they're fun to do if you want to go and do a crazy road trip, but it's not the kind of thing that would necessarily make a, a great story because you know, obviously, time is money, and you've got to you know, yeah. <laughs> it is a, it is a job uh, as well as as well as fun. So, um, but. Uh,
0: What was the Alaskan one in the winter in a Bentley? that
1: Uh, That was to Norway. And oh, okay. so again, did just a, it was Alaska uh, was well, the Arctic Circle. Oh, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So mm. yeah, um, and yeah, there was an amazing Bentley which was launched. It was two hundred and fifty grand back then. It would be probably three hundred and fifty or four hundred grand um, now. It was open top and rear wheel drive. Right? right. So it's the least suitable car to, to drive on snow and ice. Um, but I just thought, like, what's the most spectacular thing you could look at through the the open roof of this car? Um, and so I thought the Northern Lights would would probably be it. So um so I drove it from. The UK, put it on the boat across to Norway, drove up um, uh, through the the Blood Highway, the Arctic Highway, um, up through Norway for three days, um, up to to Tromso uh, to go and see the the Northern Lights, and it was just bonkers. Like you're driving at night in this fabulously expensive car on roads we'd just cannot see the tarmac but like the snow is blowing so hard across the road it looks like there's this sort of like white conveyor belt you know constantly kind of passing in in front of you you know the cars obviously on snow tires chains in the boot um and yeah we managed to to bring it back in one piece and we saw the northern lights i mean that's the thing it doesn't matter you know how much money you spend, or how well you plan, the Northern Lights might not happen. Mm. You know, you can have a trip up there for for two weeks, and they they might not show. But we were incredibly lucky, and, and did get to see them. So. Why is
0: it called the Blood Blood Highway?
1: Because of the <laughs> the physical toll of making it, basically. So right. uh, I think some might have been built with sort of forced kind of prisoner of war labor, um, and so just a huge number of people died building that that road up through kind of the Arctic, the Arctic Waste and so it kind of acquired the nickname of the Blood Highway.
0: And know you are driving so, a convertible Bentley. I know
1: there. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> sitting there in air conditioned comfort. You know, in a big it was worth their sacrifice, and... <laughs> exactly. wasn't it? It was <laughs> exactly. worth their sacrifice. They didn't die in vain. <laughs> no, so...
0: <laughs> they'd be pleased. They would be, their families would be comforted yeah, exactly. by your Bentley experience. What time of year was that?
1: Uh, we, it's supposedly the best time of year for the Northern Lights is kind of either side of christmas basically yeah so but anyway, so kind of you like are
0: what, in an open top car it's cold uh, right the
1: snow. yes so if it was snowing heavily we'd put the roof up but a lot of the time if it wasn't snowing super heavily we'd have the roof down and we'd, we'd be in my and we'd just be sitting there in two jackets and two hats and wow. and the, the seat heaters on even when it was down to sort of minus 15 minus 20 so um but yeah supposedly the peak time for the northern lights is kind of october november and then again february march and so that trip i think we did yeah, sort of end of February, beginning of beginning of March. So it was properly cold, properly cold, and it feels quite high consequence, even though you're in Norway. It's a very civilized country. You're never really that far away from help, but still, like you know, when you're when you're driving at night in those kind of conditions yeah. and in, in heavy sort of blizzard conditions, it's you know, it's. I
0: mean, driving is hazardous. You know, it has. I don't know what the stats are, but obviously, it's very safe in many ways. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it's hazardous driving down the road here you know close to your house isn't it and i think that that's kind of
1: what makes a good magazine travel feature is is a a degree of of jeopardy Mm. so you know and i think sometimes a lot of people have a bit of a misconception about motoring journalism you know they think it's all about just writing about the cars how they drive how much they cost you know consumer issues and all that's really valid and and really important but for me the joy of, of doing what i do has always been the fact that you've been able to to go off and 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 make these trips, you know, and have those experiences, and that's what kind of cars allow you to to do, you know. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day, he said, you know, we have to, you know, every time you sort of explain that you, either you're a motoring journalist or you you work with cars, or even if you just like cars, you sort of feel obliged to say if you're at dinner party or whatever, oh, you know, but like, I'm not like Jeremy Clarkson, you know, I'm not... (laughs) Uh, you know, I'm not a slightly kinda of gammony, slightly Brexity, you know, sort of grumpy man in, in late middle age. You know, there there are some who are into cars based on what they allow you to do, you know, and, yeah. and and where they can where they can take you, you know. I'm slightly concerned that if people listen to this podcast They'll sort of read the description and assume that I'm some kind of like pound shop Jeremy Clarkson, basically, you know.
0: <laughs> That's the title, though. No, yeah. I've just, I've just, they've just given me the title. Ben Oliver, the pound shop Jeremy <laughs> yeah, Clarkson. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm like the Simon Calder that just knows all. Yeah, compared li- to him. I
1: nearly knocked Simon Calder off his bike. Did you? Yeah, well, I this think he sort of rode on in into me. No, I was in a really, really if you low. I
0: get a lot more work. Oh
1: no! <laughs> Unfortunately, this was years ago. So uh, yeah, and I was driving a catering which is this incredible catering Super Seven, this super low um, uh, little thing based on like an old sort of racing Lotus from the 1950s. And, and I think he just didn't see me. And I was I was driving it round East End of London, somewhere like Shoreditch. Uh, yeah. He and, and he, he sort it. of turned into me on his bike, and I thought, oh, he's about to hit the car." And then I looked up, and it was it was TV. Simon ah, called it. So, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I should Next have just up, buying buying off exactly. his bike. Yeah, but then they'd be. Video evidence. So I'd be, yeah, no, you're I'd be,
0: right. Be you get, jail, you'll be everything. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, did you tell me
1: you've been to Korea? Which one? Um, I have been to both. You have. Um, Amazing. So, so it was the car industry that took me to, to South Korea, um, and we did a story again, weirdly in a mini, actually, where we sort of drove it as far into towards the demilitarized zone as you as you could. And then, and then went into the demilitarized zone and had that sort of tour of the DMZ and, and went into kind of the blue sheds that kind of straddled the border between North and South Korea. But then a few years later, I managed to get into North Korea, not very strictly not as a journalist, but purely as a, a private individual, because I was just desperate to go, absolutely desperate to go. There was no country I wanted to go to really? more. I just thought that it is, it's is—it's so unique, this whole nation personality cult. Like, how often does that arise? And also, frankly, how how long could it last? And I mm. thought, look, sooner or later, that regime is going to go pop, you know? And sadly, it hasn't gone pop yet. <laughs> but I wanted to, to just go and witness it and experience it while I could, you know? Um, and so I was working in China anyway. I was doing a, a story there. Um, uh, for one of the car magazines, um, but then purely in a personal capacity because I was in Beijing anyway. I was able to arrange with some people to, you know, get my visa and get my foreign office, um, uh, North Korean foreign office guides and get the whole thing set up um, and went in uh, just for sort of four full days basically. And that was honestly one of the single most extraordinary travel experiences I've, I've ever had. I kind of I would feel a bit reluctant talking about it in too much detail because even though it was a few years ago, you feel like you've been watched? Well, they will listen to your podcast, like, you know. I'm sure the North Korean foreign ministry will, will oh, listen. Listen, we'll listen to the, the big travel they so, um, But the fact is, obviously, I was, uh, I am a journalist. I had to tell a bit of a fib my application form. Mm, in yeah, yeah, it. yeah. I went in with absolutely no intention of reporting on it, and mm. I never have. But I'm just aware that the people who helped me get in there God still you. have a relationship with the North Koreans. And if my foreign ministry guides didn't pick up on the fact that I'm a journalist, that yeah, cause a problem for them. But it was Well, actually, the, a lot growing.
0: of countries, like, I don't know... If, Generally, people listening to the podcast will know this, but a lot of countries when I when I travel somewhere, I don't say I'm a journalist. No. I, uh, I I I don't know. I say I'm a writer or something. Or yeah. I don't know yeah. because you uh, obviously with the, you know it's a completely different situation over there. But even like going into the states, you know, it's yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, the, the
0: Israel. I've been to. Yeah. You know, you just don't say. It no. just causes too many problems. Exactly. You just use it just creates else. that extra
1: layer of, of yeah. Exactly. Exactly, the only yeah. danger is if they then realise that you are going there for the purpose of reporting and you haven't yeah. got the right visa. you have got an I visa for the so US. So were you reporting? A... No, I absolutely didn't. So so what was I... it
0: like? Talk about it from a holiday experience then, not as a journalist.
1: Yeah, from a sort of a, a general perspective, it was... I mean, it, there's nowhere else like it on Earth, you know. It's... Oh God, where do you start? Like, there's so many... Probably the weirdest experiences, I, I wouldn't relate, because they, they could still get people there uh, in in trouble. But I think you, you're aware when you're there that... You know, people are raised in North Korea from from sort of nursery school age to sing, you know, shoot the Yankee bastard as as like a nursery rhyme or a nursery song or whatever. And and because people live in very often in small villages, their movement is controlled, you know, you don't leave the village unless you've got a specific reason to. Um, when those people from those villages come into Pyongyang, into the capital, to to do like a cultural tour, which they do every so often to, you know, sort of pay tribute to all the various monuments to the to the kings, Um, if they see you as a Westerner in Pyongyang, you might well be the first Westerner they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And they've been absolutely raised to hate you. You know, and, and I think the, the value some of the value for, for me in that trip was was seeing people like that and seeing kind of like the, the apprehension and the fear or the worry or the confusion on their face when they see you and just smiling at them, you know, or giving them a little wave and, and just seeing that starting to break down um, very slightly. Also frankly, you know, seeing people genuinely, seemingly genuinely burst into tears as soon as they saw these these great monuments to, to the Kims mm-hmm. and trying to figure out do they really feel that that love and that loyalty to that family or are they just doing it because they're terrified about what will, what mm. will happen to them to them otherwise so uh, and also frankly the level of bullshit as well like they took me to uh, to to the the north korea and the pyongyang film studios which were completely deserted right there's nobody there and and i said hey where is everyone <laughs> and they said oh they're all out in location and i'm like what all of them and they and they just believe this stuff and they'll and they'll repeat it so um but it was yeah it was bonkers honestly there, there's yeah there's so many stories i could tell from that some which you know just to, a bit excessive but i just i would even i'd worry even out about yeah, about you know that's sort of getting, really getting, getting, could getting protect people of the people trouble. who took so, yeah, in there so yeah yeah exactly exactly but but yeah then i was able to kind of stand like probably not many people have done this, you know. I'd, I'd sort of stood on the South Korean side of the demilitarized zone. I was able to do the same thing on the North Korean mm-hmm. side. In order to get there, I had to sort of you know wait two years and go back via via London. Um, but there's probably not many people who sort of stood either side of that 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 line because just because so few people get into get into to North Korea. So um, yeah, odd, 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 odd weirdest thing I've ever done. But what like,
0: else? Yeah. So what else stands out in your travels? I'm, I'm aware that we've got to go to we, first of all, we've got to go to lunch in a minute with the. Um with the car people and then I've got to go live on the BBC News channel somewhere you outside yeah, of it. Yeah, because you're a proper
1: servant, Oh, yeah, so no, forgot, I'm getting massive yeah. imposter syndrome here. No, because, no. You know, because you look back at like the people you've had. You've had Warwick Davis who was in Star Wars. You know, you've had like Mini Driver yeah. and now you've got the pound shop Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, so it's, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. with
0: <laughs> the pound shop so, Simon you... Calder. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> no, when I'm, I'm listening to all the places you've travelling I think you've been to like far more places than I have and I'm a travel expert. Um... And. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but then you you, have... you've got to have the reason to go there. And the great thing is, like I said, the car industry just enables you to yeah. go there. North Korea was different. I need was to make drive more cars. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, listen, in the EV era, you know, we and I mean, yeah. we're sitting in an EV now, we can we're absolutely still do do road trips. You know, yeah. just, it's still going to be True. possible. It'll just be properly environmentally friendly. You know, I, I do a little road trip every year with my kids from from the South Coast, where we live, up to the northwest coast of Ireland, um, where a bunch of my family live. Um, and, and you can do that fully electrically now. So even with, you know, me, my partner, dog, two kids, bikes on the roof all the rest of it it is, it is possible so, I
0: had a, uh, I was in uh, Sweden and Denmark two weeks ago seeing my brother my brother was playing in this big festival he's a, he's a musician and he was playing this it's rock band with Mike Tri- Tramp and um, the songs of White Lion they used to be very big uh, in the 80s and it, Mike is very well known still in Denmark mm. and anyway they're playing in this Sweden rock festival so I flew over and met him there got the train up to uh, Sweden Rock it was about two hours on the train from Copenhagen and then I was going to drive back with the band which I did but the band somebody had rented them an EV, and mm-hmm. they've never have one before. And they all went along to the festival, parked the car, went and did the gig. Then after the gig, we all got drunk backstage and had a great time. And then we came back out to the car and like. And, like, nobody had charged the car. <laughs> yeah. So we had to... We spent about four hours getting back from Sweden. We got back at four o'clock in the morning, yeah. um, stopping at petrol stations where they had, you know, uh, charging, electric chargers, um, you know, doing, like, 20 minutes here, then 20... Driving another bit, do 20 minutes there. And they were like, oh, the stupid people shouldn't have rented us an EV. I was like, no, you should have got someone to go mm. and park it. Yeah, and charge it, it and while charge you Charge it yeah, in, exactly. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there is, there is this, that. To it's be quite honest, funny, the, though.
1: Scandinavians are amazing they are one of the biggest and earliest adopters of Mm. of electric vehicles and their their charging network is okay I think we we sort of obsess a little bit too much I think about the state of the public charging network that you're using to to get back because we're used to having petrol stations always within Mm. easy reach you know used to being able to kind of drive into one of those fill up and within kind of five minutes you know you're, you're gone and yes the public charging network in the uk could be an awful lot better you know and when i do those those you know big road trips in, in the electric vehicle in in the uk um because our regular family car is, is an ev it can be a pain sometimes but the point is it's so rare there are so few days when you're actually using more than the the, the range of your car the vast majority of days 360 days a year say you will wake up with a full battery in your car, you won't get anywhere near, you know, using up all that charge in your, your daily driving and you come back home and you might not even bother plugging it in that night because you know you're not, you're not going to use it all the next day. So if it's a bit inconvenient mm. on, you know, the five days for argument's sake when you're doing big mileages just doing more than 300 miles in a day, yeah, it's a pain in the bum but you kind of weigh that up against the massive convenience and the lower cost and the lower emissions, obviously, um, that you have on, on all of those other days. So, so you're and, a fan,
0: basically. Oh, a good. massive fan, yeah. yeah. yeah
1: well, our, our fourth family electric car is, is going to arrive in in september and we've we've had three so far and i wouldn't go back to to petrol for 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 you know for, for daily driving so on long trips it can still be a pain but but and the charging network really needs to improve but it will improve you know we've, we've got to give it time
0: where so. have i missed in terms of your travels because you've had so many
1: god i don't know um I don't know. North Korea definitely seems like the the biggest one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kashmir, La, it was called that. That that pass was definitely the the maddest and most dangerous and and highest one. Um, I don't know. For me now, it's. I think the joy really is in taking my kids places and, mm. and probably. The, the, I really the, want to take my small places. So.
0: Yeah, well, I don't get to because I can't really afford it. I yeah. really want to. Yeah. No. I Need I, to do my family travel features.
1: Yeah, and I kind of wonder at what age they really start to appreciate. The, the place where you are you know my mine, mine are eight and ten now I think what they what they really love for me anyway about travel is just the time that you spend together you know mm-hmm. the fact that, that you know there, there's no distractions we're, we're you know we're just out together we're doing stuff but also what they love is a road trip you know it sounds honestly it sounds like child cruelty when I tell people that I take my kids on a two-day road trip from where we live in Sussex and up to Donegal, like literally diagonally across the, the British Isles and when we get up there of course there's loads of fun the family are all up there there's amazing beaches in Donegal, it's yeah. just it's stunning I, I love that place but honestly Lastly, what my kids love most is the road trip there's, there's very little kind of screen time they just love that time in the car, listening to music sort of playing dumb word games uh, and so for the trip that we're going to do this summer um, I'm going to actually extend the road trip bit and do slightly fewer miles each day but just take a more kind of circuitous route uh, up to Donegal, we're going to go by Snowden probably, we're going to spend a little bit of time, then we'll get the boat from, from Hollyhead across to Dublin, spend a bit of time in Dublin, maybe go to New Grange, which is a, an old sort of Stone Age site in, um, uh, in in Ireland and from there kind of drive up to, to Donegal and just focus on that you know and I feel like because I'm a motoring journalist am I inflicting the road trip on my kids but genuinely no, that's that's it, a bit yeah. and maybe they pick up on your enthusiasm mm. as well
0: so all my childhood holidays when before we moved to Spain uh, when I was seven they were all uh, camping in the south of France with my parents who had camper vans I told yeah. you that 13
1: they had, camper 13 vans that was amazing not at yeah. the same time not at the <laughs> same
0: time no but my dad worked at Vauxhall's and he had skills and contacts and he used to buy an empty van they were all these like lovely oh, so he did the conversions no himself. he didn't okay, get right, someone right, else to do it yeah, but he okay. got a good yeah. deal and they were all like beautiful VW. W camper vans, yeah. you know, that were, were actually being given away quite readily at that point. Nobody yeah. wanted them. And that, you know, the, well, I'm, my parents were starting in the 60s, but the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Yeah. And uh, and then drive down to the south of France. And I have amazing memories of yeah. those camping yeah. trips. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, okay, well, I've got to ask you my last question because we've got to go and have lunch and then I've got to go live on the BBC News channel. Uh, like a proper journalist. <laughs> no, no, a real, a, real, a, real a real one. Not yeah. one of these Ponzi motoring journalists. Obviously, a real no, one. I don't know what I'm so... talking about. Uh, where, where's Simon Colder when you use him? Um, and uh, so I'm going to ask you my Last question, which is always about music, and I think you're a music fan, aren't you? I am, yeah, because um, I very much think that music and oh my god, music and, and driving so go hand in hand, as far as I'm concerned. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what road trip are you on? Oh, uh,
1: okay, well, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have
0: to be a road trip, I'm just assuming you are
1: I thought that was going to be really difficult actually, and you're going to put me on the spot, but it's, it's it's pretty easy to be honest. When when I was on that big um road trip in the mini. Uh, up to, to Kardang La this sort of highest motorable road in the, in the world getting up to that final pass at 18,000 feet was, was actually wasn't easy but it, it wasn't that dramatic the main difficulty was getting into Zanskar and Ladakh which is kind of the province you know from which this pass kind of rises because you have to go through a pass called Rotang La which is known as the place of death basically <laughs> um, and that's where the big rock side was and we kind of got stuck for two days anyway once we got through that we were then officially in Kashmir and I hopefully fairly broad musical taste but I really do loved Led Led and, and, yeah, I, was and <laughs> I had saved I deliberately not listened to Kashmir <laughs> for like the seven days or whatever it had taken us to get from Delhi to that point but as I crossed the border into Kashmir I put on Kashmir and, and I might have had a little bit of a cry so it was, yeah. it was oh, that was just that, and, and the scenery up there it looks like the cover of a prog rock album it's bonkers like the colors of the mountains purples and blues and you're in this very sort of high cold desert environment which i hadn't really been in before and the whole thing was so extraordinary and to actually be in Kashmir, to have got through it to have not died on that mountain place and to then have you know page and plant playing that was yeah that was that was a moment i, got,
0: I can moment. totally feel that i totally because i love the song i love led Zeppelin. i love it yeah i love totally feeling that uh ben thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast thank you Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Remember, subscribe on whatever app you're using, and you can get every single episode downloaded into your little handy phone device totally for free.